Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station. You know what I'm talking about. It's Resonance 104.4 FM, baby. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by senior editor and internet sensation Ash Sark at IS Caesar and Jeremy Gilbert, professor of cultural and political theory at the University of East London at Jem Gilbert. Hello and a warm welcome to both of you. Hi. Here. Today we'll be talking about migration. It's framing within much of the mainstream media and how that framing is reproduced at the everyday level by normal people. If they do exist, that, that mythical category, normal people. For some, those who express such sympathies are racist and bigots who unthinkingly repeat what they swallow from the powers that be. While for others who adopt perhaps a more materialist explanation, they're often the losers of globalisation, with migration acting as a signifier for a broader discontent with austerity, flat pay and increasingly stretched public services. Today, we'll be asking whether it's possible to admit that perhaps both are true, whether such opinions can be changed, and ultimately, what progressive working-class cosmopolitanism might look like in the 21st century. Jeremy, I'll start with you. Uh, while it's clear there's been an agenda within much of the media for the last 15 years, particularly Britain's famously right-wing print media, the tabloids in particular, of course, around migration, these issues have always been here. Uh, the National Front was a prominent presence in Britain's streets only several decades ago. The Tories famously deployed the rhetoric of want a N-word for a uh, neighbour, vote Labour, uh, as recently as the 1960s. So given all of that, to what extent are public attitudes to migration new uh, and reflective of material issues around pay and housing in particular that can be attributed to a falling economic model since let's say, the early 1980s, but in particular since the global financial crisis 2008? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it is always important to take note of the fact that there's a very long tradition in England, especially, but in Britain generally, of, of working-class conservatism, you know, which goes back hundreds of years, not just sort of 50 years. And with the work, there was a strong, strong working-class, quite xenophobic working-class tradition even in the Conservative Party before the, even before the Labour Party existed. I think that's important because it's sometimes evoked as if it's a new phenomenon that we have to confront and we have to change all our tactics and strategies to deal with this apparently emergent phenomenon of working class conservatism which includes sometimes racism and xenophobia and it's really not true at all but, but as your question implies it does um, it takes different forms under different circumstances and it rises and falls depending on broad social circumstances I think we can say there's a pretty clear pattern from the sort of early to mid 70s onwards um, of the right in various forms using you know, a, implicitly or explicitly appealing to a certain strand of xenophobia, a certain strand of, ra certain strand of racism, essentially to shore up support for a political programme, the eco political economic programme of you know, neoliberalism, which, are, it, which on its own terms wouldn't be very popular with anyone. So that is so, and I think in, it's really striking in some ways the kind of the anti-refugee discourse that we've been seeing, and the kind of the anti, which is always very closely tied to anti anti claimants discourse, right? It's the, in the kind of popular press in anti claimants, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it, you can't really separate those two things, and you can't have a, you can't really have conversations in those contexts without talking about the issue of the welfare system as well as issues of immigration. Uh, Immigration, And in some ways that does sort of rehearse some of what was going on in the 1970s. But in other ways, I think what's striking is, I mean, as your question implies, it is, I think if you look at the fine grain of the way in which those things are talked about, compared to the way they were talked about even in the 1980s, I think, it, what, I think one of the things that's striking is it does seem to be, a lot of the time it seems to be very much a kind of almost purely economic rationale which is given for people's xenophobia there's people are people are, are told by various sources and people believe that immigrants and immigration 
pose an immediate threat to their economic resources. And I think compared to kind of earlier moments, it seems that there's, you know, traditionally the sort of cultural, you know, cultural racist or, or genuinely kind of you know, biologically racist arguments are pretty weak in those contexts, I think. I mean, I think we've got a problem here, which is that race and class are being framed as um, distinct formations. And, and I think that needs some unpicking. But the first thing I'd like to say is that framing racism as merely a result of economic crisis, a result of scarcity, as a result of austerity, is pure fraff. Those hardest hit by austerity, so precarious forms of labour, real terms fall in pay, are people of colour. And I say this all the time, but hopefully that doesn't make it any less true. If racism was just a case of people making derogatory comments about my perceived background, that would be bless, right? Man pops off, you get in a scrap, you learn him good, job done. But that's not what racism is. Race is materially constituted and class composition is racialized. And I want to talk about, like, if there's um, the space to just what, what that means. So, for instance, black workers face a massive pay gap. There's a 23% pay uh, there's a 23% gap in hourly pay between black and white university graduates. Um, there is a think tank called the Resolution Foundation, which found that ethnic minority people have lower employment rates than other groups. Um, the employment gap between the best and the worst performing regions of the UK was 11%. But if you look at that in racial terms, um, black and minority ethnic people have a 26% employment gap. And black people minority people are disproportionately affected by the growth of precarious forms of work. So between 2011 and 2014, temporary working increased by 25.4% amongst BME employees. And during that same period, temporary working increased by 10.9% amongst white employees. So those gaps are huge, and we really need to talk about that. I think unemployment as well. I don't know about now, but I remember right in the teeth of the crisis in May 2009, unemployment rates for Bangladeshis in Britain was... Just unbelievable. And of course, a very large proportion of the British Bangladeshi population lives in London, specifically Tower Hamlets. So as a local problem, that was just unbelievable. I think that really undergirded actually the rise of that political party we now know as Tower Hamlets first. There was a big demand for a different kind of politics from, from that populace, as well as others in the, in the area, of course. So, Ash, you're saying an economistic kind of reductive analysis of racism doesn't make sense. I mean, given what we've just seen in Austria, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a poor country, is it? I mean, standards in Austria are fantastic. Social housing provision, fantastic. Very nice life in Austria if you're an Austrian citizen. And yet they've almost gone for a neo-fascist head of state. There were some people that saying that the Freedom Party, oh, what's wrong with the Freedom Party? Here's what's wrong with the Freedom Party. They were founded by former SS officers and they want to greater Germany. If there is a party in Europe today which justifies the name neo-fascist, it is... I would say them, but I'm not Tim Montgomery. Ash, you want to say something? I mean, the problem with framing things in terms of scarcity and hardship is Mm. that it fails to look at what goes on during times of so-called abundance, right? Um, One, racism doesn't disappear during those times. It's not like in the 90s everyone was going around skipping, holding hands. Racism just, yeah, didn't exist or affect people's lives. But it also fails to account for how abundance happens, right? Um... The standard of living that we enjoy in this country, me as well, is predicated on the exploitation of resources and labour from the global south, like fundamentally. So you cannot read 
an absence of racism in that kind of abundance. Also, like thinking about how class composition is racialized, class composition in this country as we know it could not have happened without colonialism. The 19th century doesn't happen without colonialism. These things are inextricably bound up. Um, and I think that a vulgar materialism, which says that economic interactions are in no way inflected by identity, is, again, fraff. Well, I'm not sure he's saying that, though. I'm not sure he, he was saying that. I mean, you, I think on the one hand, you're talking about the persistence of structural racism, which is un, undoubted, undoubted. On the other hand, you know, Aaron's initial question was really about changes in sort of immediate political discourse and sort of political motiv motivation. Uh, and I would say I don't disagree with any of your analysis, but I don't think it necessarily follows from that analysis that, for example, the rise in sort of anti-immigration discourse is, is actually is necessarily motivated by commitments to those sort of very old forms of racism. I think I think one of the most challenging things for us on the left is when we're confronted with forms of, of, kind of, of sort of xenophobia, which are clearly not, which can't be reduced to, to expressions of those kinds of persistent racism, which are undoubtedly real, undoubtedly really crucial. But I think this is the problem. I mean, the problem is when you look at the, stati you look at the statistics, for example, there's, a, there's no real variation between you know, different ethnic communities in terms of how far they're willing to buy into this narrative, which says, oh, well, one of the reasons, you know, we, there's too many immigrants, you know, they're, they're, there's too, you know, they're coming here to scrounge our benefits, you know, they're causing problems for us. You know, so I think... The, my argument is not at all that structural racism isn't a, isn't a problem, or and of course my argument is not that structural racism it can be reduced to sort of an, we can't explain it simply in economistic terms. My argument is that we can't really we can't simply ex assume that that kind of rise in, in sort of xenophobic sort of anti-refugee anti-immigration discourse is simply an expression of that kind of racism. There's no question. There's no question they're closely connected. There's no question there's a powerful relationship between them. But I think there's also, as I've said, there's very good reasons for saying well they're not exactly the same thing all, all the time. I mean, also there are new there are new forms of xenophobia which have gone mainstream in the last decade, like anti-Polish sentiment. Um, sentiment that is against workers from Central and Eastern Europe, which, by the way, and I mean, again, people can disagree with this, when you do go to hotbeds of UKIP support, uh, I've not gone to the northeast, but southeast, southwest, people are generally, now this may be a floating signifier of something else, but people are generally talking about Central and Eastern European workers, and they are very much othered. Um, and I wonder, Ash, where that fits into the account you're giving of... Um, class and race being inextricable from other, I agree with that, of course. But then how this is just a simple outgrowth of a perennial racism, British racism, which uh, can be traced back to the 19th century. I mean, for me, the thing to look at is that 19th century moment where the, all language of difference, whether it was gender difference, sexual difference or class difference, was articulated through a kind of racial taxonomy. So there's a really good, really excellent book called How the Irish Became White. And I think you're seeing a similar... Um, kind of patterning where Polish workers, workers from Eastern Europe who very much consider themselves white, who are racialized as white but not quite white. Um, the difference between that kind of subject position and being racialized as black, being racialized as a racial other is that you may become white through participation in various institutions or economic practices, which is not available to people of colour. I mean, Catholic Church attendances, for instance, are being bolstered, they have been since the middle of the last decade, by the, precisely these people. So the claim would be that they are 
participating in these institutions, right? None, none more so than the Catholic Church um, in Britain and Ireland. But that doesn't seem to be sufficient for their inclusion. I mean, they are white, they are Christian. Given we're talking about, I think we, we probably agree that the major inflection of racism right now is Islamophobia, I think, in Britain. Given that, you would think that Poles as Christians would not be othered, right? Why does that... I mean, the, the, cha- the process of becoming white is a gradual one, so it's not something that you're going to see in 10 years, 15 years, or even 20. Like, the durée is longer. and that, I mean, that's something that's like talked about in the book. Um, and certainly, one of the key differences between now and the 19th century is that racism doesn't declare itself in the same way. Racism frames itself often as something which is explicitly not talking about race. It frames, like it articulates itself in a way which is framed in culture or framed in jobs, framed in economics. Um, whereas in the 19th century, there were, you know, these pseudoscientific discourses which <laughs> said that the Irish biologically had more in common with people of African descent than Anglo-Teutonic races. Um, Now, that's not being said of Polish people, people from Eastern Europe, although a similar unease about the precise quality or provenance of their whiteness is being articulated in a much more subtle way. But, I mean, I would ask if you... I mean, are you going to say there are not situations? Because it seems to me that one of the situations... Uh, which has emerged in some sort of you know urban context in some especially sort of medium sized towns I think um, in the kind of places Aaron was talking about is a situation where you have communities who are quite comfortable even with a with a with a visibly very different Muslim population which, who they're used to being there and yet they're participating they're 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 expressing this this again this quite xenophobic attitude towards new immigrant new immigrants new age immigrants can I build on that yeah. so if you go to for instance Gravesend again <laughs> I had the pleasure of displeasure displeasure of going there last weekend has a very large Sikh population. Okay, very, very large. This is a finding from the last London mayoral election. Guess whose vote up went up for the Tories after a hugely Islamophobic uh, campaign? Sikhs. More likely to vote for Goldsmith last May than they were for Boris in 2012. So it worked, right? That campaign worked with Sikhs. It worked to a lesser extent with Hindus as well. Okay, so it's very, very effective. And like you say, a lot of these old places, they do have a, a, I hate using this language, but this is the language they're using, settled migrant communities, brown communities, and there seems to be less of a political conflict with them in terms of the discourse that's being mobilised, the rhetoric, okay, than there is to Central and Eastern Europeans. And I think that must be an outgrowth of a material fact, which is that these countries joined the EU in the mid-noughties and that they became a visible presence on these streets very quickly. Um, <clears throat> I, that's a morally neutral fact for me, you know, but that seems to be the explanation. Also in terms of how economics inflects racism, I mean, the National Socialist Party in Germany come to power four years after the Wall Street crisis, right? We're not going to say that the Nazi Party would have, you know, won a democratic election in the 19, you know, 50s. There's a reason why parties like them or like you know the Italian fascist party have let's be honest quite a bit of public consent behind them in the immediate aftermath the biggest economic disaster <clears throat> of the last 100 years similarly the reason why the windrush um, migrants come over here early 50s you have very low unemployment um, you have a, a political set of parameters with, within which that's possible. I don't think it would have been possible with high unemployment and hyperinflation, for instance. So clearly economics has some role to play. Similarly with the National Front uh, and the uh, the emergence, really big scale. These were big organisations in the 1970s. Um, 
the economic context for them can't be forgotten either. And I, I do worry sometimes with the left, and this comes out in a vulgar sense with activists on the doorstep, right? Where they go, racism is just false consciousness of the working class, like, you know, like we were saying earlier. That's the, that's the vulgar bit of it. But then the, the more informed side will say, well, racism's always existed, so therefore economics and economic crisis doesn't inflect how it manifests itself in particular times and particular places. I think racism towards... Central and Eastern Europeans right now is inflected clearly by a crisis of, of democracy in the European Union, a crisis of capitalism more generally for all the, the advanced <coughs> economies of the global north. So your thoughts, Ash, go on, your response to that. Um, I mean, just to clarify, I'm not saying that racism and economic crisis or perceived economic crisis um, don't have anything to do with one another. I'm just saying that there's not a causal relationship. Right. Um, directly. And I've got really a, a question for the both of you then in, in terms of this um, question of racism and its relationship to austerity. So far, we've been framing this in terms of how white people, settled white people, white British, um, perceive recent immigrants and communities of colour. The question that I want to ask is, what do you think, if anything, changes in these times of crisis and how white people perceive themselves and, and their own whiteness? <coughs> what is the work that whiteness is doing here? Do you want to go with that, Jeremy? That's a great question. I'm going to have to think about it. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it is a really good question. I mean, the, um, I mean, the, 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 the first fact about whiteness generally is that it, it, it's invisible and it strives to be invisible even to itself. I mean, what it means to be white usually is you don't have to think about it. And as soon as you start thinking about it, you have to you start qualifying it. So, so um, norm, I would say normally, you know, normally speaking, that's the case. And I would say, I would say that under these, you know, under, in the specific, you know, I don't think it's. I think it'd be very difficult to generalise. I think probably the answer to that question would be different in different countries in Europe and and in and in the States, for example. Um, um, I think in Britain, you know, whiteness continues to be it does continue to be relatively invisible. It continues to be something which you know in, enables people not to really reflect very much on the kind of, for example, the kind of imperial and colonial histories that you're th that you're talking about. Although I also think it's you know, I think it's specifically in the sort of British context. I think. You've always got to take account of the fact that the, I mean, I think you know British partly because British whiteness has so rarely seen itself to be challenged in any way. It's also it doesn't have the, the same exactly the same kind of history of kind of hostile defensiveness as so some as I think whiteness does in some other countries and in, and in the United States. You know, I lived when I was a kid for a while, where you really have a kind of apartheid tradition in some places. So I think it's, and I think that's, you know, that's on the one hand, that that makes a certain kind of casual sort of liberal multiculturalism quite easy to propagate and popularise in Britain. But it also makes it very, very difficult. It makes it even more difficult in some instances to make racism visible, to make the kind of structural racism that you're talking about visible. So I suppose my answer is just that the work is that it does the work it always does, ultimately, which is to occlude, you know, is to, is, is to mostly it's to occlude racism. Uh, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I think the US comparison is really noteworthy. Um, obviously, we all read the dreadful piece by Tristram Hunt in The Guardian where he compared UKIP voters, I suppose, in seaside towns, the southeast, the northeast, to the sort of American south, which I just find so vulgar for so many reasons. I mean, he's meant to be a historian, right? I mean, wow. Um, Using the term really quite loosely. Yeah, exactly right. Um, very, very strange. Um, 
his claim was that the sort of the the St George's flag is a signifier for lost England. You know, the thing is, this thing didn't start coming out publicly until the mid 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. You look at football matches from the late 80s. Yeah. Many of these guys on the terraces, they were racist. They were white supremacists. They were waving a Union flag, right? So the the, the St George is quite new. Now, why did that happen? I don't know. I'm sure there's much smarter people about this that can say say why. Jeremy's probably one of them. Well, Jeremy is one because uh, I've I've heard him say it before. For me, I would say that the only that the English have no institutions, right, because of empire and Britain. Britain was the original mafia syndicate by which they could extend empire globally. That meant that the English uniquely don't have any institutions or cultural heritage, really, of which to speak of. And I don't mean that. I've been saying that for a very long time, right. but with a different kind of value judgment. I, I don't mean I don't mean that dismissively. Like I mean, it's really an analytical, objective statement. They don't really have any institutions. The only one is the football team, the English football team. And uh, people have talked about this in the context of Nigeria in the past, right? What institution unites the north and the south of the country? Sectarian, you know, sectarian, religious-infused politics. It's the Nigerian football team. It's the, it's the Super Eagles. And I think, people might laugh, I think the English football team does something very similar. It's the only institution, actually, which a lot of these people share. And I really struggle to think what else the St. George flag means so going back to your point about because I, I do want to talk about that as well i think going back to your point about what the what purpose whiteness serves i suppose it's almost spiritual nourishment in times of material hardship right so if you go to a lot of places where economically things are looking pretty bad there is i would say probably a greater fear in flag faith and country than there would be in during the good times right but I mean, that's I, that's a marginal thing i'm not saying it's a, it's always there i just think it's amplified during times of economic hardship I mean, I would agree in part with what you've had to say about whiteness as this universal that doesn't have to declare itself, but I don't think that's quite the same as invisible. I think the often strategic blankness of whiteness just means that it, it can be mobilised in different ways according to, according to need, really, and it makes itself visible in certain ways. Um, I think that... Like... One of the victories of anti-racist movements has been that white people cannot openly perceive themselves as white and say that this is the basis for my politics anymore. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And there are little cracks in the facade that you see come up, especially in relation to people of colour, especially Muslims, demanding that their dignity and contributions to society be recognised. Now, when... Uh, Malia Bouatia was talking about the need to decolonize the academy. One of the responses, um, I forget who it's by now, uh, was that, hey, um, everything that's of value has been produced by Western civilization, also known as white people, and framed it in that, those terms explicitly. Um, Katie Hopkins is writing op-ed pieces. <laughs> I mean, I, like she's she's absurd, but pointing out that she's absurd doesn't make her importance it doesn't dissolve the harm that she's doing. Right. It might have been easy to laugh at her when she was just popping off about how much she doesn't like the name Tyler, but her recommendations for training gunships on, on boatloads of refugees mm. actually, you know, frighteningly um, become policy. You know, she's writing articles which is, which are explicitly framing the need to aggressively defend whiteness white Englishness, white Britishness. Um, 
So while it was possible for whiteness to get by and be effective without declaring itself, you are seeing the beginnings, I think, of that wearing away in, in some places, and I think that's significant. What do you think, Jeremy? I mean, I'm inclined to agree with that. Yeah, sure, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. But I mean, I also think sometimes what, it's important that whiteness declare itself. I mean, sometimes, you know, whiteness is something white people have to be conscious of, have to, you know, learn to be conscious <clears> of. That's part of the struggle, and it's part of, you know, acknowledging the existence of kind of white traditions. You know, I write about... Yeah, one of the things I've written about over the years is music, and people get really agitated when I talk about white music. My my argument is always, well, you've got to acknowledge like there's such a thing as white rock because it's which is basically marginal within a history that's actually which all the important innovations were not by not white people. So and because it is, you know, because there is because there's a specific break in the history of kind of rock music, for example, where it just loses or it completely distances itself from its roots in rhythm and blues, etc. Um, so I think white, and you know, and so I think it is politically it is it's important that whiteness, you know, be challenged and kind of recognise itself. And I think one, of, I mean, one of the challenges, and this is an equivalent around lots of other identity categories. Like one of the political challenges is, well, what does it, you know, for us is what does it mean? What does it mean to acknowledge that in a way which isn't defensive, it isn't aggressive, it isn't it isn't predicated on notions of white superiority? I think that I think this connects exactly with the, the issues around Englishness, actually, because I think to, I think actually I, I sort of I, I get why you're thinking talking about whiteness more now. No, actually, I thought at first I wasn't sure we going this, but this connects exactly because I think you're I think you've got to I think actually that's that's what people like Hunt that's sort of what they're groping towards, wanting to find a way of talking about, whether for reactionary reasons or understandable reasons. Like, how do you talk about whiteness? How do you acknowledge the the fact of whiteness in a, in a, you know, in a genuine? If we actually were living in a genuinely multicultural sort of utopia, then we would have to talk about whiteness in the same way we talk about other categories um, and I think nobody really I, I think to be fair nobody really knows how to do that nobody knows what it means to do that and and I think probably that's one of the challenges for the 21st of progressives in the 21st century is to figure out well how do you talk about that in the same way it's very difficult to talk about masculinity in the same way you know there's a real problem with how, how you talk about heterosexual masculinity in a way which acknowledges that it exists and it's not going away and it's not going to stop existing but it's in a way which doesn't just reproduce oppressive structures and binaries I mean, I've, um, for a long time, I thought of myself as English, probably until I was about 16, 17, again, because of the formative experience of Euro 96, and people might laugh, right? You know, and there were no British institutions which I really felt were compelling and inclusive. But then as you get older, you realise that Englishness is a ethnic quality. It is a white quality. Now, I don't like Britishness. I don't like British either. But when people say, where, what, what are you? Where are you from? You know, I'll say I'm British. I won't say I'm English. Because at least British is a civic construct, okay? You know, I can, it's a, I'm not saying it's tolerable and fluffy and warm like Gordon Brown, but it's definitely different from English. I think that's definitely been the case since the rise of the EDL. I just say, well, look, if you're going to call me anything, I'm British. That's what says my passport. So be it. I can care less, right? Um, and this is coming from somebody who thinks that if, the, if Scotland wants to leave the Union, good luck to them. So then the problem is, if we do literally have a legal political entity called England, I am worried about that, genuinely. And I'm not saying, I know the left loves to be doom and gloom. Oh my God, a crisis. <laughs> this is a big problem. Because Englishness as a category is a white category. It has no upsides, right? At least with empires, Ottoman Empire, we had this in a great show when we were talking about you know, contemporary Turkey. The Ottoman Empire, you can repurpose em imperial values to be multicultural, multilingual, you know, polyglot. Um, you can't really do that with ethnic ones, right? Very, very tough. So I think Englishness really... Britishness, I struggle to think it could be repurposed. Englishness, absolutely not. Um, I mean, which is why I think of repping the ends as counter-hegemonic, like, praxis. So... But that's, you don't, I mean, at so the molecular level, it's great. But I mean, at, the, at, the mac at the macro level? I mean, I, mean, I, I say this um, as a totally serious joke. 
which is how do people of colour in this country make sense of themselves? How, how, right. how do young people <clears throat> of diaspora backgrounds yeah. make sense of themselves? Yeah. And it is rooting themselves in the neighbourhood that they find themselves. Right. And, you know, I, I grew up in North London, um, incredibly diverse because it wasn't the posh bit. Um, and you're constantly interacting with people who call themselves English, who call themselves, you know, all manner of ways of relating to their identity. And it it was really um, an interactive and exciting place to grow up. And the thing that held everyone together was that we hated people from Hackney. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, at the molecular level, that's very good. At the macro level, in terms of how do you build solidarities between people of colour in this country and... Um, Global South, for instance. I mean, I don't know if that's a, if that's a sufficient identity. I mean, is it going to change the world? I mean, it's cool, but I mean, I, I guess what I'm looking at is like, how do what people operate within the identities that they already have? Right. Um, like the speculative stuff is also really important, really great. Um, but I'm thinking about how do people develop a political self, right. a cultural self. That makes sense. Through, like you say, yeah, the categories totally. that they already have. Uh, did you guys watch the last one? It's the East End. I know, I meant to watch you when I get home. I meant to watch you last night. People <laughs> well, have been talking about it. My self-loathing doesn't go that deep. No, then. well, I can't blame you. For those who, who aren't aware of Last Whites of the East End, wow, I mean, just what a title. It was on BBC. It's a documentary looking at the decline of uh, white communities in the East End of London. Uh, I think the one I watched was focusing on Newham. Um, the person I was with whilst watching couldn't watch it. Uh, I thought it was pretty useful because it's very rare that you hear racists actually um, rationalise what are often unsaid racist opinions to themselves. That was really a, an opportunity for me. But I, it, nonetheless, I could still only watch for about 15 minutes because it was absolutely sickening. One of the protagonists, Eileen, I can never say this name right, Kerslake? Kerslake? Kerslake. Kerslake. There was a footballer once called David. Yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> one of the protagonists, or maybe it's a relation, Eileen Kerslake, 88, said there would never be a true community in the Newham area again due to the influx of migrants to the borough over the previous 15 years. Um, now, as someone who's lived in London for 13 years and probably 20 places, it's clear to me that community in London is often difficult to grasp at. And then its populations, whether British students, EU workers, Commonwealth citizens or whatever, are highly, highly transient. That is, however, because... Of capitalism. Here's a quote from the Communist Manifesto. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionising the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. Constant revolutionising of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient, excuse me, <clears throat> and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his, her, real conditions of life and their relations with their kind. That, in short, is the simple reason, I think, why Mrs. Kaslake's community has gone. Stasis really isn't a thing, particularly in cities, particularly under capitalism. Where the show was racist, I think, well, I know, really, was that it failed to interlocute that point, to challenge her opinions and suggest there were material reasons why change had transpired now <clears throat> excuse me here's a question is it possible to go to people like eileen kerslake 88 talk to them 
and at least change some of their minds. How uh, and what kind of organisations would be necessary? She might have a heart attack if I ever go to it. Okay, well, yeah, well, I think it is. I mean, and I think in recently in, Bri- in British sort of left politics, if you, or centre left politics, to use a term I, I loathe, um, there's been well, there's been a very specific response to that set of observations, which is that represented by the Blue Labour project, which is essentially to say, look, um, these kind of conservative, you know, the conservative white working class, and indeed the conservative settled, you know, working class from various you know eth- ethnic backgrounds, um, you know, is, what they dislike about the things that have happened to them is that they dislike these kind of dislocatory consequences of unregulated capitalism. And so therefore, we should make common cause with them, in fact, by opposing, by getting them, by persuading them to understand that what causes these things they don't like is, is, is neoliberal unregulated capitalism. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's clearly very, very problematic. It's very problematic for all kinds of reasons. Um, I mean, it's worth bearing in Marx, you know, when he wrote, when Marx wrote that, he was all, I mean, he was, it was one of his most brilliant expressions of his own, like, perpetual ambivalence, sort of, or sort of, comp- or perhaps it's fair to say, just very complicated attitude towards capitalism. You know, on the one hand, he gives this kind of breathless description of the way in which capitalism, cre- you know, changes everything in this quite, often quite brutal way, but he also thinks it's wonderful, he thinks it's incredible, he thinks it's going to produce a kind of cosmopolitan humanity, a kind of cosmopolitan universal working class, which right. is going to liberate everyone, including the bourgeois from capitalism and alienation so and I think um, I think well I think we've so and I think the left to some extent the left is always like caught up in that paradox to some extent we're always caught up in in, in the fact that to some extent some of these things some of these processes which capitalism produces are processes which a lot of us are sort of okay we sort of endorse to some extent in the sense that in the sense that we would want to subscribe to a sort of cosmopolitan ethic a cosmopolitan aesthetic and we uh, and you know, and we, you know, we 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 would probably share Marx's desire for a, some sort of you know, ultimate, you know, ideal, universal cosmopolitanism. But on the other hand, it's also the case, and this is what Blue Labour taps into in a way which I think is not politically productive, but it, but is raising some important points. The fact that from the point of view of the, of the you know, ironing curse all that stuff has been done without anybody asking them if they if they were into it. Really, and all with that, and it's been all that stuff has happened, and it hasn't happened in order to deliver to them a cosmopolitan utopia. It's happened mainly because someone somewhere thought they would get cheap labour out of it, whether they actually did or not. So that produces a really complicated situation for us. I think what, to answer your, actually answer your question about what kinds of organisation. Well, I think on the one hand, in very it's a very crude, very boring answer, but we cannot abandon the historic left project of trying to argue for a non-racist and anti-racist, you know, and, and a sort of positively cosmopolitan politics amongst the working class. Like we have to be prepared to go to people and say, you know, look, and say, and indeed say to them, look, a what has caused the things you don't like wasn't, you know, it's not the, you know, it's not you know, nasty immigrants, it's capitalism. But the, but I think we also have to be very wary of this sort of blue labour conservative communitarian response, which says, well, therefore, what we have to offer to her is a sort of conservative communitarianism. Now, the question then is, well, how do we offer? What do we offer in, in its place? If we no longer believe, for example, that just just telling her to raise her class consciousness and join the organisation which represents the universal proletariat is is the solution, which it was for a lot of the dogmatic left for decades and decades, if we don't think that, well. What is it? I think that's an open question for all of us, really. But I think it has to have something to do with engage, finding ways of engaging like communities of all different compositions, like as much as possible, in dialogue and in conversations around you know, what kind of world we want to live in, what kind of communities they want, what would actually be the costs of, of, for example, introducing the kind of immigration controls they want to introduce. Um, 
I think it has to be something along those lines. I mean, I would begin by starting in a different place, which is rather than saying, what do we do with white working class people? Um, some white working class people. Some white yeah, working class yeah. people. No, um, the reason why I'm framing it in this way, yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere with it, bruv. <clears throat> Sorry, yeah, yeah, no, because um, I don't want people to say we're saying all white working class people are racist, yeah. Um, is how do we start with the experiences of working class people of colour <clears throat> who are the most exploited, who are the most oppressed? And you know what? Whose communities are being broken up as well in London, yeah. um, especially thinking post-riots, especially thinking about how gentrification and racism work hand in hand. Um, this idea that communities are being broken up, that you know, working class communities, which are being imagined as racially homo- homogenous, our um, archetype of what you know, working class sub- subjectivity is still a white dude with a whippet. Um, it's woefully out of date, and I think we we need to um, address that. This idea that it's being broken up by an influx an influx of people who look different, who talk different, just is inaccurate. Isn't the case. The thing that I would say, hang on, what do we need to, you know, what do we really need to address? What do we really need to fight? I don't, really don't have that much beef with Eileen, right? My beef is with bourgeois racism. Um, less so working, like, it's much more difficult to be a working class white racist who has to live in proximity to communities of colour. Obviously, it still happens. Obviously, working class people of colour have to deal with that kind of racism and street harassment every day. Um, but it's a lot more difficult to sustain because of this proximity. Let's look at white working class female sexuality and how that's been viewed as suspect because of proximity to racial others. You've got this like Vicky Pollard notion of, you know, here's a white working class woman hmm. with her babies of many colors. Um, <clears throat> isn't, isn't that disgusting, right? So it's both racist, classist and sexist, right? The holy trinity of bad comedy. Um, but that is the vantage point of bourgeois racism, right? They're the people who can laugh at that sketch and then say, oh, isn't it great? We have this really um, middle-class Gujarati dentist family living next door. Um, it's that kind of cognitive dissonance that I've got more of a problem with. And again, thinking about, like, what do we do as the left? Um, I'm feeling a bit more Malcolm X these days. Mm. There is no we. Um, there is no appeal to whiteness. Mm. I'm interested in working with my skin folk and my kin folk. Mm. So the white people who are down yeah. and who are willing to do that reflection mm. and people of colour because populist racism is on the rise and I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that lives are at stake. Um, it is irresponsible to to, to frame a political response in terms of an appeal to whiteness. I think we should be looking at challenging whiteness, dismantling whiteness, abolishing whiteness. But there is something of a history of coalition building amongst radical black movements, right? Fred Hampton was the first to say, "We we need to appeal to white working class communities and show them why we have mutual interests. Um, so you don't think that should be the work of I, I, anti-racist activists? But that wasn't Fred Hampton's starting point. Was saying that this is what we do after we've organised some community self-defence. Um, right? I mean, like, it's, it's not saying that white people are the enemy, white working class people are the enemy. It's saying we need to start with the most abject subject position and then build outwards. Um, That's Hampton, what I think. Hampton, I mean... I mean, I've not, I've not read, I've not read that exhaustively on the Black Panthers. But Hampton's big innovations were: we need to go to gangs, people who aren't black, 
black people involved in potentially criminal undertakings, organised criminality, and we need to politicise them, um, as well as Latinos, actually. It wasn't just uh, African-Americans. And also working-class whites. Um, and that was his big innovation. That's where he was a little bit different, actually, to the people that preceded him in leadership positions in the BPP. I think that's a... I, it shouldn't be the priority, of course not, but I do worry that that's sort of just jettisoned because it's obviously necessary. And, you know, um, in somewhere like London, I mean, the fastest growing ethnic minority in Britain, I think maybe in Europe, maybe in the United States as well, is, is mixed race, mixed heritage kids. And um, I wonder where they fit into a scheme which says we don't appeal to these people. Generally, those mixed race kids aren't racialized as white, though, right? So they are. Some are, some aren't, right? I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I, I think I'm racist as white generally, and I'm mixed race, you know. But, but what I'm saying is that they are, you know, we're not looking at race just in terms of how you identify, but how you are identified. Right, of course, that's and what that's matters. Shaping your experiences. Yeah, that's what matters. In terms of Newham, I mean, it's quite a rare exception, isn't it? Because London isn't seeing white flight and sort of working class brown and black people flood in. This is not the 1980s, right? What we're seeing is, I mean, some of the pictures now of the new Elephant and Castle development, it looks like Potsdamer Platz. Um, and what you're seeing actually is that's a huge Latin American community there, for instance, they're going to have to leave. A big Nigerian community, they're going to have to leave. A Colombian community in particular, actually, of the African, uh, Latin American community in Elephant and Castle. They're going to have to go. They're going to be replaced by presumably the global 1%, uh, home counties, people, etc., etc. So Newham, I think, something of an exception. And I thought that, again, another criticism of that terrible, terrible show commissioned by the BBC was that that isn't actually the story right now in terms of urban transformation demographics uh, in the 21st century. I just That's not happening. That was a story 20 years ago, right? Um, going back to what you were saying, Jeremy, about Marx, he did see, didn't he, capitalism as a revolutionising force for better and worse, better than feudalism, because it would bring down all these old barriers between, uh, between the nations of the world. And perhaps the big oversight of, of Marxism, historically, was it didn't really understand the, um, the robustness, really, not only of the concept of the nation-state, but of nationalism per se. Of course, we see that with yeah, yeah, yeah. the First World War, the great yeah, yeah. internationalist movements to the left buckle with very little pressure. Uh, the demands of nation states to go to war with one another. Uh, do you think there will always be a problem that um, besets the left, uh, or, or have we not have we not done internationalism correctly? Well, I think, I mean, you, you no one can predict the future, um, but I think, yeah, I think, it, yeah, I mean, what you say is absolutely right, and also, I mean, also, and I mean, to some extent, that's a blind spot built into Marxism from very early on because he doesn't really, he doesn't, he doesn't, I think, fully appreciate the sort of savagery of imperialism. I mean, he sort of buys into the narrative that imperialism is ultimately a civilizing force, which is really problematic. I mean, I mean, to be fair, every single one of his sort of intellectual legacies by the early 20th century had abandoned that position, and, and, and were writing very, you know, eloquently. People like you know Lenin and then Rosa Luxemburg writing very eloquently about you know the kind of savagery of imperialism but and you're i mean you're right it's the great you know it is the it is the it is the point at which the political prediction of marxism that the the, the kind of economic self-interest of the working class will enable them to see past the kind of illusion of the ideological illusion of national identity 
Um, no, I don't. I mean, on the one hand, I'd say no. I would have to say no. I mean, from I would have to say I don't think it's a perpetual feature. I don't. I think those forms of na- actually that the forms of nationalism we're talking about are relatively recent historical inventions. They sort of they they really they have some historical antecedents, but they're basically products of the early nineteenth century. Um, and I think they, I do think actually they're in decline. I think we're seeing new emergent forms of, uh, of, of racism, of xenophobia, of ethnic belonging, and those for, um, certain kinds of nationalism and imperial and indeed sort of imperialist nationalism still have a very long history in a lot of purchase, but they're also they're always in flux. So I think I'm, I don't I don't really go along with that sort of Tom Nairn position that you just have to accept nationalism is is irrevocable and then and oh, then well, find well, a progressive. Well. Yeah, and then find a progressive nationalism, which I think is easy to say if you're in Scotland. As we've discussed, it's a lot harder in England. I mean, there are people. There is a there is a whole intellectual tendency, including some people I'm very close to, who, who, who like Billy Bragg, think we can find a progressive Englishness. And I think, you know, I think good luck. That's like, you know, I mean, I'm 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 fine with it if we can if we. Can, I, I sort of think we have to try. I think they're probably right. You have to have a go. We tell everybody Englishness is all about William Blake and not not about you know white imperialism. Let's let's keep let's keep banging away at that one. And, and I, I don't think it's going to work, but but I think broadly speaking, no, I don't think we can abandon. I don't think we can abandon internationalism. I don't think we can abandon cosmopolitanism. And the other thing, I mean, I've talked about working class conservatism, but I would also say, you know, and I think it is an important point that. You know, the, uh, I mean, there is a very long tradition, especially in the urban centres and not just London, in Britain, there is a very long tradition of working class cosmopolitanism. Mm. There's a very long tradition of working class solidarity between different communities. There's a very long tradition of solidarity between workers, between the, the work, industrial working class and, and people of colour, not just here, actually. I mean, in the 90s, you know, there's a, there's a really heroic history of solidarity with Indian, in, you know, Indian workers in the cotton industry. In the, it, you know, if you go into the history of the um, cotton industry in Lan- places like Lancashire, so there's a really strong history of that stuff. And I think, to me, that's very important to recover. And it's very important to recover that. And it's very important to recognise that that is, you know, that is real. And I think that kind of visceral experience you're talking about of growing up in Haringey, um, Ash, I think that's a, that's a much more... Actually, one of the things which I think has made made the sort of Corbyn surge possible was actually that that kind of constituency of people who've grown up in communities and like that and, and completely didn't want to buy into sort of blue labour or one nation labour and completely and also don't buy into any sort of, sort of bourgeois liberalism that constituency is much larger than, than most people realise than most people are prepared to take account of and I think there's also this sort of myth I think which I think is an important myth for us to counter politically that sort of cosmopolitanism is purely a preserve a luxury of the middle class elite whether it's in London or something somewhere else. I think it's really important to acknowledge that there is a very strong history of working class anti-racism, working class cosmopolitanism in, in various parts of this country. And I think it's very dangerous to dismiss that. It's very da- And it's very dangerous. To, I think the, the worst thing we can do politically, actually, is to endorse that narrative, which is really part of the hegemonic narratives in this country, which says, which indeed says, oh, well, working class people are spontaneously racist and they don't, and, you know, they're just, and, and that you can't, and that it's impossible really to build solidarity between different communities, especially communities of the poor, because the historical record makes clear that's not true. And, and absolutely, there are people who want us to believe that's true, desperately want us to believe it. Um, I mean, to, to clarify again, um, my beef is with whiteness, not white people. It's whiteness as, the, you know, um, an articulation of power. It's whiteness as a method of social control. And I think you do see really encouraging signs, like in Newham, um, the Focus E15 campaign, um, also the Carpenters' Estate um, anti-regeneration campaign that I was a part of uh, back when I was at uni, um, incredibly racially diverse. 
um, because it was focused on this like really immediate material issue. And people were talking about how gentrification and racism work hand in hand. White people were talking about that, and it was it was really wonderful. It was really encouraging to see. Um, to think about you know possibilities for a prog progressive nationalism. Um, I think what the thing that we need to insist on as leftists or, I don't know, just people with Twitter accounts is that the state itself is not a raceless paradigm. Um, I was at this conference called Focus on the Funk uh, at the weekend, which was organised by Kojo Karam, who was on the show a, a few weeks ago. It was a great show, Ash. Um, my Very boy Kojo. Very good. Listen to on SoundCloud. Excellent show. It was a good show. Um, so he organised this conference and uh, one of the panels was on uh, race, property and the nation state. And another former guest on the show, uh, Karem Nizanjolu, was saying that, look, the you know 17th and 18th century period in which concepts of the nation state and sovereignty are being expressed, you know, like by Hobbes and stuff like that, you know, in the 17th century, this is inherently inflected by nascent white supremacy. When Hobbes is talking about notions of inside and outside um, and thinking about and taking the model of um, the Virginia colony um, as an as a understanding of, of how sovereignty works, that's not something which um, is only incidentally racist. Hobbes was also a shareholder in a Virginia plantation. So one of these things that I think we need to do is really challenge this idea that the nation state at all is something that can be recovered by a leftist or a progressive discourse. I think we need to get much more invested, not just in challenging state institutions, but challenging the state itself. I mean, we were talking last week about populism. And of course, there are different accounts of what the state does. And one of them is, I think it's the Poulancian uh, idea of the state, where it's basically just a compound of various interests and ideas. And it's a bit more of a neutral terrain than that. And then we were talking about, clearly it's not um, a favourable terrain for radical politics historically, that's obvious, right? Um, and we were talking about, well, look, if the PCI can't change the Italian state, two and a half million members, if the German Social Democrat Party can't change the German state before the Second World War, before the rise of Nazism, what hope does Jeremy Corbyn, one person, <laughs> and a handful of MPs within the Labour Party, or Bernie Sanders, or even Podemos, what hope do they have of engaging with the nation state, which, like you say, isn't a particularly advantageous uh, terrain for radical politics? So we've got 10 minutes left. You're listening to Navara here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We are talking uh, class race, class cosmopolitanisms in the 21st century. Um, I guess this discussion today was generated by the horrendous Tristram Hunt article in The Guardian we've already talked about. Uh, but this is an ongoing issue and we've tied in over the course of the show, I think, white supremacy, Englishness, the rise of Englishness and white supremacy, different kinds of xenophobia and racism, particularly Islamophobia in the last 10, 15 years. These all seem to be coming together. We're also talking about potential, um, potential solutions. So 10 minutes left. Ash, you've said the state isn't particularly productive. Jeremy, you've said that you don't think it's got much go in it, but that a progressive English nationalism should at least be attempted by some people. I mean, if they want to do it, then go ahead and do it. 
if English nationalism isn't the, the frame by which to do this, because look, the demographic change in Britain is happening, and this is a yeah, positive yeah. thing. Okay, this is a positive thing, and it, 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 it is seemingly inevitable historically. Mate, we're providing you with a national cuisine. Like, <laughs> give us some credit. But it, no, but it does. Okay, I think so. United States becomes majority minority twenty forty something. Already, the majority of children born in twenty nineteen in the United States will not be white. Okay, uh, so that's. This is happening. Britain is set to become majority minority, where no ethnic minority is the overall majority, I think, in the 2060s. So this is happening. And I think for the left now, people like Jeremy Navarra and other people, we need to generate the ideas which can scale amongst a very changed Britain over the course of the coming decades. So you're critical, I think, correctly, of the state. You're saying an English nationalism, progressive nationalism won't work. So what are the frames, what are the identities which a majority minority Britain needs in order to have a working class cosmopolitanism that brings together brown, black and white people? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one answer is, I think, you know, it's something we've already alluded to a little bit, which is sort of urban identities and local identities. I think it's, I think specifically when you look at the political and cultural history of England, I think it's quite significant that the attempt to sort of promote the idea that England is essentially a pastoral country, that's where the essential Englishness is located, is precisely bound up with the attempt to popularise the empire as a, as a broader, as a popular political project at the end of the 19th century. You know, before, I mean, England was the first country in the world to urbanise. It's the first country in the world to industrialise. And up until about the 1890s, it, it, across the globe, England is a synonym for urban modernity. That's what it means. And to put it very crudely, what's happening by the, by the 1890s is lots of people, especially the ruling class, are getting very worried that the logical, that, as Marx predicts, the logical destiny of that urban process of modernisation will be some kind of socialism. So you've got to build support for popular conservatism. At the same time, the British Empire, which broadly speaking has been a sort of commercial enterprise largely up to that point, start, is, is having to recruit so many bodies now to go and fight, go, you know, go and subjugate um, colonised populations that they need to build some popular support for it. And part of that is this completely ridiculous narrative about England as the green and pleasant land, this kind of pastoral country, which still kind of dominates the English imaginary. And I think, to me, that's, I mean, one of the, that, that's the key element, not the only element of a process, whereby you get what I sometimes call sort of metrophobia in English country, in, in English culture, this idea that the city's a dark, horrible, scary place you want to get away from, you want to get out to the suburbs, you want to do something. And I think it's not an accident that... Historically, you know, some of the most powerful kind of radical political communities sort of identities in, in England have been sister city identities. You think of London and Liverpool in the 80s. You think of the history of sort of municipal socialism. And you think of the idea of, you know, just the idea of London as a kind of cosmopolitan, egalitarian community, as kind of vapid as that is a lot of the time. And I think, um, and I think, you know, I think, for, I think one of the argue, I think, for example, I think one of the projects, I actually think one of the projects of Osborne's Northern Powerhouse, or one of the aims of his Northern Powerhouse project, is to neutralise what what seemed to be emerging, which was the possibility of a kind of strong devolution agenda based in the cities in Leeds and Manchester in particular, which would almost certainly have been much more politically radical than some general Northern regional identity, which would be much more diffuse and much more administrative and won't have that kind of visceral sense of connection that people have with their sort of city. So I think, I think you know, to put it very simply, one answer to that question is, is, is push for devolution to the cities, like including London, and, and, and enable those kind of urban identities, which don't include everybody, but they do include quite a lot of people, enable those to some extent. Not to, not to become the only kind of point of identification for people, but, but to come sort of, to some extent, you know, sources of a kind of positive energy and some sort of positive identification. So I think that's one. I think also, you know, 
I'm not completely. I'm not as convinced as a lot of people. I'm not. I'm not convinced the Britishness is completely finished. I'm not convinced. I think we don't. I think your. I mean, your point that the that the kind of the the revival of the notion of Englishness is pretty recent. It doesn't go that. Um, it doesn't go that much further than football. It's not nearly as big a thing as I think you pointed out on Nima. It's not nearly as big a thing outside. You know, the home counties really. It's not as big a thing in the north. You know, in the north in, in the northern cities, the idea of Britishness, the idea that Scotland that they that they're just as have they have just as strong affinity with Scotland as they do with Southern England is still very powerful it was very powerful when I was growing up there in the 80s so I'm actually not convinced that Britishness is completely exhausted I think one of the conditions for the emergence of Englishness actually is, is simply the dominance of the home county the dominance of the south right. over the rest of the country and over England because um, <clears throat> so those, those are part of the answers um, what do you think Ash? Um, I think that it's not enough to push for devolution to the cities you also have to um, resist by any means necessary the fragmentation and dispersal of working class communities of all racial backgrounds um, because London ever increasingly is becoming a rich man's playground um, people are being pushed more and more to towards the periphery this notion that we have of the inner city being a dark place populated by dark people um, less and less true every passing year so I think that's the like first thing that um, needs to be done, that needs to be addressed. Um, the second thing is to... I'm suspicious of an anti-racist discourse which insists on the harmlessness and... Um, that, in, that insists on the harmlessness of communities of colour, which says, look, we, they actually do want to integrate, look, they're net contributors to the economy, they, you know, um, stuff like that. Because it doesn't challenge the essential racist premise that our position here is only ever contingent on other things. Um, we are tolerated, we are not welcomed. And again, it's one of those jokes that I make in all seriousness. Maybe we need to embrace the fact that our very existence is framed as an existential threat to Britain and to Europe. We say, hell yeah, because these are things that need to be abolished, that need to be transformed, need to be dismantled. Um, I don't think Britishness is finished either, but God, I wish it was. Uh, we've got two minutes left on that Britishness point. I mean, if you go to North Dorset, and again, it's only one part of the country, I'm not going to say this is the, the world, right? This, this is what people like Tristram Hunt seem to do when they talk about the home counties, Essex, Kent. Go, this is England. I think you're right. It's a localised thing. If you go to North Dorset, people don't believe me. Go there. There are more North Dorset flags than there are Union flags. Now, I don't know if the council's paying for this or what, but it seems very strange. Ditto Cornwall. You go to Cornwall, there are more Cornish flags than Union flags or English flags. Cornwall's not England at all, you've got to be clear. Right, exactly. That. Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, Dorset, but Dorset's pretty close. Yeah, yeah Dorset is. And that's not even a real yeah. flag. I mean, that yeah, flag's yeah. Like invented in like 2009 or something. <laughs> so there is, a real, there is a real desire out there for, I think, post-British identities, and I think Engl Englishness is filling that gap. Uh, I think we probably have to fill it with something ourselves. Uh, any concluding remarks? We've got one minute left, is that correct? Yeah, any concluding remarks? Well, we can always, we can always lead out. We don't have to push it to the wire. I mean, we do that all the time, right? A breathless finish. My name's Aaron Bassani. Jeremy Gilbert, thank you so much. Thanks. Ash Sarka, thank you so much. Thanks for listening, guys. Great piece coming out on Navarra TV very shortly. Please tune in for that. My name's Aaron Bassani, Navarra Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com and wire.navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube.
Navarra Media, media for a different politics.